0: Welcome to the FinTech One On One Podcast, episode number 344. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City in person on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register... At Lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Rick Song. He is the CEO and co-founder of Persona, Now, Persona is in the hot identity verification space. They have a number of FinTech clients, some big name clients that you would know. We talk about some of those in depth. We also talk about the identity verification space in general, how Rick believes it should work, how they differentiate themselves from their competitors. We talk about the different use cases. We talk about data storage. We talk about the customer experience and how the expectations have changed there and, and the tension between friction and providing a good user experience and why really Rick believes in a real flexible, personalized approach there. He also provides his perspective on the recent fracas with the IRS and their facial recognition software, what the IRS did wrong and what he would have done differently. And we talk about the arms race with the fraudsters and how that's been going and much more. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background. I know you, you spent some time at Square. And just tell us a little bit about what you did there and then how the idea for Persona kind of came about.
1: I was an engineer at Square for about five years. Not the most exciting background, but nonetheless, that entire time there, uh, I was focused on working on identity there. And one of the more fascinating things that we encountered at Square, Square started off as a payment solution, really focused on merchants, enabling, you know, fast, seamless payments anywhere. Mm-hmm. But over time, Square's evolved. And these days, I mean, Square's evolved so much that uh, the name itself is no longer Square. (laughs) At that time, it was evolving from starting off as purely a payment processor for small merchants into an entire suite of products for small businesses, anywhere from lending to payroll, uh, fulfillment. Back then, uh, once upon a time, Caviar was part of Square, Uh, to cash, peer-to-peer transfers. And now these days, there's investments, there's Bitcoin, there's crypto, there's so much on this platform. But one of the core things that we were encountering at that time was that identity was starting to emerge in different ways for every one of these use cases. If you are someone who is signing up for payment processing versus if you're getting a million dollar loan, the core kind of like identity experience started to change. What you need to know, how you need to know them from both a compliance, a fraud, a risk perspective, all of these things were starting to kind of uh, change. And on top of that, we were building not just a single one-time relationship with these merchants. Instead, we're building a lifelong relationship. We're powering their business. We're working with them for possibly decades to come. So in that perspective, we were starting to see identity emerge from this one-time transaction and evolving it into a relationship instead. So these were really the two core kind of seeds for Persona. The first of which was identity was starting to bifurcate from being this one-size-fits-all into an entire ecosystem of Every single experience really necessitates something different from lending to payroll, from signing up for compliance purposes to peer-to-peer money transfer. And two, we're starting to see identity evolve from this one-time transaction into needing to know who this person is across the entire relationship with them. And those are really the two core foundations around persona. What we'd seen on the market at this time is there are a lot of really, really great point solutions. There are a lot of folks out there who are building you know, solutions out there that really look at identity from a singular perspective. Either one, from a methodology perspective where they're focused on like saying that biometrics, the future of identity, that is going to be what solves it all. Or two, we're starting to see folks who are really just focused on a single industry. They're like, you know what? We're just KYC and KYC is what we do. And at Persona, we really took a step back and we're like, how can we build a platform that could be universal, that could work for any use case and not just that one time transaction, that blue check mark, but rather ensuring that there's this level of trust between the user and the organization across their entirety. So those are really the two core things behind the background of it all. To touch a little bit deeper in terms of like the background of the industry side, uh, one core thing that we're also really starting to see is that as identity becomes increasingly important for different businesses, more folks out there are taking a maximal approach towards collecting as much data about the individual as possible. And we're starting to see this increasingly become more and more uncomfortable. right? You know if you were to ask folks like ten years ago, we would say uh, SSNs, uh, we probably all felt relatively uncomfortable putting our SSNs online still. But these days, we're collecting things like biometrics, we're collecting these like government IDs, and it's becoming increasingly of the norm. And I suspect that given the trend that we're seeing, this will only continue to increase. And as much as I want to believe that there's going to be some silver bullet towards solving all this, and if there is, we're going to be on the forefront, working and partnering with companies to make sure that we are making this successful for all. My perspective on more so is that maybe the faster way to get us into a place where we're just not being as aggressive is not only tailoring for the business, but also tailoring that experience for the individual. If you are a low-risk individual, if you're someone who you know, is verifying yourself from your home on a device you've used countless times, we should lower that friction, make it such that you're not submitting as much. Maybe we don't need a biometric. But maybe you don't have to submit a government ID. Maybe it's just your name, birthday, and address, and we can have enough certainty that you are who you say you are with just that. Versus, if you are, let's say, traveling to Russia, you know, it's a one-week trip somewhere, you know, far off. If you have to access the internet through a VPN, look, we're not saying it's not you. We just think that, you know, for both you and the business security, maybe we should collect a little bit more, kind of like making sure that that experience is tailored for every individual. This isn't just from a risk perspective; it'd be from a background perspective as well. If you're a recent immigrant, it doesn't make sense to collect your SSN. You likely haven't gotten one yet. If you are, you know, from a lower income. Using credit headers as a mechanism to verify your identity probably doesn't make sense. So Persona is really trying to take this idea that there is not one size fits all and businesses need to know continuously that people are who they say they are.
0: Right, right. Okay. So then maybe can you just talk a little bit about some of the fintech companies that you're working with? Because I've seen in the press some of the pretty big names that you have as your clients um, that are out there publicly. Can you just take us through one or two of those and describe exactly what you're doing?
1: A couple I always love to call out are like Square, Robinhood, and BlockFi. Mm-hmm. And BlockFi is one which I really love to call out because they're really on the bleeding edge of identity yep. as, you know, they're within the crypto space and crypto and fintech. There's just such an interesting kind of just connections here, right? But uh, at the highest level, I'll start with Square first because this one could be a little bit shorter. Right off the bat for Square, the first major use case we work with them on is uh, PPP. So uh, at that time, they need fast distribution. Millions of Americans needed access to PPP loans in a, just a scaled fashion. And one core thing for Persona is not only do we care a lot about like flexibility to make sure that every one of these folks out there can have access to these highly critical loans, we also care a lot about privacy and automation. And we think that, you know, these days we think a lot about automation purely from the perspective of cost cutting from a margin advantage perspective. But we really felt that automation also unlocks privacy and ensures that there isn't someone in a foreign country, looking at your IDs manually. I personally believe that the future of privacy will not be that. I think that there is no way that we continue down this track of there's manual reviewers for every single thing, especially ones who are not associated with the business you're doing business with. I cannot imagine that it will continue to be the future. So for us, we build this in a fully automated way. And the benefit of this is in this high, high volume kind of environment, we're able to partner with them to ensure that every single loan was able to go out in an incredibly timely fashion. PvP evaporated in a matter of uh, moments. Yeah, and then on the BlockFi side, I think this one's really exciting because BlockFi is really evolving the same way we saw Square evolve from starting off as you know a single kind of like really leveraging crypto as a mechanism for you know uh, for savings returns into an entire kind of a crypto ecosystem financial wallet of sorts and almost a financial bank account of crypto. And it was... Super excited for them on this front is we work with them on all stages of the life cycle. So earlier I used one which was really focused more so on like tailoring that use case today. I love to use BlockFi to talk a little bit more on the relationship side. BlockFi, if you start opening an account, you're going through Persona, working with us to kind of get the individual set up. For continuous monitoring, making sure that transactions, this individual continues to stay safe. They're using us to track and make sure that, hey, this individual isn't trying to, you know, transfer money, kind of like do watch trades, things like this. They're not trying to like do suspicious activities with their crypto account. You're trying to recover your password or you're trying to do a major withdrawal. If the risk is sufficiently high, they're leveraging Persona to make sure that it's the same individual withdrawing this money. One of the scariest things, especially within the crypto ecosystem, is you get further and further away from a bank account. It also oftentimes means that it's a little bit harder to ensure that the money is going to exactly the right place. The reversibility of crypto... It's always it's both one of the coolest, but also one of the most challenging parts of it. So we work with them to ensure that the safety of the transactions are there. We help them also gather additional information. If some person is doing a little higher risk stuff and we need additional documents beyond just government IDs, we help them collect this type of information to ensure that, you know, this person is still doing the right stuff there. And as we unlock you new know, account features as well, we're all, all there along the way, making sure that, you know. You're constantly building that relationship with this individual. And one benefit of this is it also ensures that you're not collecting everything right off the bat, right? You're not right. just like, asking for the entire kitchen sting, your entire background, just collecting a subset of information.
0: Right, right. Okay. So, um, and you mentioned Robinhood as well.
1: I'll be honest, I can't go too deep in it on their end. Uh, right. You know, for them, one of the more exciting things is really just making sure that for when you sign up and you're a higher risk individual, you're going through a persona in these cases. And if you're someone who's, you know... Past recovery, or if you're uh, trying to focus a little bit more so on these high value transactions, persona's on the way to make sure that you know, you're know you buying a million dollars of GME stock. We're not saying you can't, you just have to make sure that it really is you want to make that transaction.
0: Right. I just want to go back to BlockFi because I'm a BlockFi customer. We've had Zach Prince on the show, uh, the CEO there, and really interesting company. As you say, they're in the crypto world where a lot of people like to remain anonymous What is it you're actually doing? If you could just maybe dig in a little bit and tell us, if I want to go and like clean out my entire BlockFi account, sell it all, what are some of the things you're going to do to verify that I am who I say I am? It really depends on the risk
1: that they're seeing on your end, right? And there's a lot of things that factor into that risk. This could be anywhere from the amount of money you're withdrawing to the location you're withdrawing it from, to the additional risk scores, your prior activities on the platform itself. And depending on all of these different criteria, we'll be presenting something that might be a little bit more unique towards the exact flow you're trying to go through. So this could be collecting a biometric, making sure that, you know, asking for a selfie, making sure that you are who you say you are in that perspective and comparing that against prior incidents, asking for a little bit more personal information, asking to submit a government ID again, and any mix of these to kind of just get that additional certainty that you are who you say you are when you're kind of like making that major withdrawal. So we're doing things like this, especially to kind of like add that additional certainty on the risk. And one cool additional thing is also taking into a lot of like these passive identifiers as well from device information earlier, I mentioned kind of location information and kind of compare, Hey, is this close to the previous time that you were uh, on this platform and utilizing all of that to kind of give a holistic perspective as to, is this person who they say they are?
0: Right. Right. Got it. So then, so you're taking all this information, how are you storing it, Like particularly like the biometric information or actually all of it? Like, what are you doing? You obviously, you have to take it in, you have to put it somewhere to compare it to what you have. Then what happens? Where does the data get stored or do you just delete it? The answer here is it really, really depends on the use case. So we're partnering with folks
1: too for alcohol delivery, for check-ins as well. And depending on the use case as to whether we have to store it or not really depends on the compliance and the organizational controls. So I'll speak of this from two perspectives, one of which is when do we store it and two is how do we store it? So on the when do we store it, it really depends. If you're a financial institution, there's a lot of regulations in terms of how long they have to persist this data. For most financial institutions, it requires a minimum of seven years to store this data because, you know, for regulators, if they need to come in later on to see what's going on, they need that data to be readily available. On the flip side, this doesn't apply to all information. So for example, for biometric information, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll discard the biometric markers. The markers themselves are oftentimes the most at-risk information. So after the comparison is made, we discard that information and we'll regenerate it the next time that you verify yourself again. Okay. If anything's kind of hijacked, they're not hijacking the most sensitive aspects of how this comparison is being made. Right, right. On the second half is how do we store it? On the security aspect, we're trying to do a lot. And fortunately, my co-founder and I come from a Dropbox and Square, respectively, and a large portion of this team really comes from our backgrounds of Square, Dropbox, and a lot of folks who have focused on like data infrastructure and data security for a long time. And one thing we always like to call out is that storing data securely is not an intractable problem. It's actually a very, very tractable problem. Um, my favorite analogy here is to just think back on when was the last time that you've seen these major payment giants leak credit card information? there's a lot of security being applied. And the reason why is one, there's been a lot of regulatory and uh, compliance requirements to actually manage this data whatsoever that for, uh, adds this requirement on businesses. But two, it's also just because these companies have an tremendous amount of incentive to manage this data well. And a persona, I mean, this is the lifeblood of our company, managing, collecting, verifying this data on our customers' behalves. So we try to apply a lot of similar techniques that we've developed at our previous roles to ensure that all the data that we're collecting is managed, and being stored in
0: the best way possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So you know, we're recording this in mid-February, and in the news, I think it was earlier this week, the IRS came under fire because they were using facial recognition software because they said there were a lot of people were getting through some of their fraud detection. They were having problems with verifying people's identity, so they put in facial recognition software, and then everyone said, "Oh no, no, you can't do that." So. Love to get your thoughts. I'm sure you saw the story. What should the IRS be doing? My perspective is it's really threefold. The first of which is,
1: I think it should be opt-in. Honest answer here is like, not everyone's against it. What really, really is a struggle there is that everyone has to do it. I didn't get choice, right? And I think that's a really big problem. And our perspective on it is, is that every individual, like they should be able to choose how they need to build that level of certainty. And there should be alternative mechanisms than have to always submit a biometric. And this isn't just from a privacy perspective. Another very, very real problem with biometrics too is is accessibility, right? If I recently, you know, had a tremendous change in appearance, it's going to really affect my just ability to access these services. And for something as critical as IRS to have that lack of flexibility, I think is really, really big challenge. The first, of course, is that opt-in aspect and making sure that biometrics isn't the keys to the kingdom, but rather just one of the many kind of paths you can take. Right. The second is that I think the overall approach that was taken, it's collecting everything possible for every single person. And earlier, I've been speaking a lot about this idea of progressively segmenting individuals based off of the risk that they present to minimize how much they were collecting. My hope for the future is not one in which we're collecting more and more just to keep reaching that same level of assurance that individuals are who they say they are, but rather we're seeing a future where depending on who you are, Minimizing that risk, and my favorite analogy on this end is really again back to payments. You may see this as a recurring theme because half my brain, given my prior experience at Square, will always be on the payment side. Mm-hmm. And in the payment space, if, when you make a really large and maybe a risky transaction, you'll get a call from your bank, and they'll be like, "Hey, can you confirm this transaction?" Right? They're not doing it every single time. Only whenever you're at the highest risk, they'll be like, "Hey, I just need to you know, collect a little extra information about you to make sure you can make this payment because." This is a very novel one. Maybe you're buying a Tesla in Florida. Who knows? Right? It could be a very, very large one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think on the identity side it should be the same. Where, look, if you're signing for the IRS, you know you're on a VPN. You should probably do something more. That's a really, really risky kind of interaction. It's fascinating, you know, that you need the VPN to access the IRS site. Right? You should do something else. Right. And the third point I'd have on the rollout is I think you really need a data processor there, not a data controller. And this is getting a little bit too much into the GDPR terminology. So what i really kind of like break it down into is as a data controller, you're building a relationship with a private company. The private company owns your information and then is delegating that back to the IRS. Whereas at its core, the information that you're submitting should belong to the IRS. That's who you're building that relationship with. And it's a little bit strange from my perspective to have to kind of like have this middleman who is just telling the IRS you are who you say you are but that's not who I trusted immediately, right? I wanted to build a relationship with the IRS in this case. I want them. I trust the government. I may not always trust a private company. So I think right. this is like a third kind of aspect of what we really need in that kind of situation is that infrastructure to provide the IRS the tools that they need,
0: not a proxy
1: that I'm trusting for some of my most sensitive information for access to that.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. So it leads into my next question, which I want to get your sense on how customer expectations have changed, particularly when it comes to sort of the experience of opening up an account or making a big withdrawal. And because there's more customers now online, you know, in the last two years than there ever has been before. And so more people are having to come up against all this. So how has customer expectations changed in the last couple of years?
1: I'll
0: say from two ends,
1: one of which is kind of for our customers. And of course, the second is customers, customers, the individuals like all of us who are going through these. Um, and for the latter, what we're really seeing is we're expecting different things from every experience. And I think that's really fascinating. So I'll break this down a little bit. These days, if you are, let's say, opening up a bank account, it's probably an expectation to submit your SSN. But if you're completing a course on Coursera or Udemy, it'd be a really weird experience to submit your SSN. Right. On the flip side, submitting your driver license is still a little bit kind of uh, sensitive if you're opening up that same bank account. But if you're ordering alcohol... There is literally no kind of a sensitivity around submitting so a driver license since this is how we've been buying alcohol in person for you know, our entire lives. So what we're really finding from consumers these days is that they're expecting different things based off the experience they're really signing up for. And there's like these embedded expectations around it. And this is one of the major trends that we believe is fighting against this idea that there's going to be a one size fits all, a silver bullet for identity. Is this idea that Consumers expect unique identity experiences depending on what they're interacting with. If you're opening up a BlockFi account versus if you're opening up a JP Morgan account, consumers implicitly expect a different experience for the two of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: And then for our customers, what we're really finding is uh, organizations who are providing these experiences, the forever challenge within the identity verification space is, I don't want fraud, but I want maximum conversion. And unfortunately, the history of this has been, look, if you want to fight off more fraud, you're going to sacrifice some conversion. If you want more conversion, you're going to let a couple more bad actors through. And our perspective on it is you can have both. It's a lot more work to have both, but the way you have both is by, again, tailoring that experience to the individual. So for us, we're really trying to push on that angle of tailor the experience, make it kind of a progressive, make it tailored for every and unique experience for every individual such that that way, higher risk, decrease that fraud. And then if it's a Lower risk, increase the
0: conversion. Like there is that friction that always seems to come between, you know, a good user experience and preventing fraud. So what you're saying then is you isolate who is a low risk, give them as seamless an experience as you can. And if you're someone who's higher risk, then they have to go through more hoops. So it sounds like you have to obviously determine early in the game who's high and low risk, right?
1: Our actual perspective on this, you can determine that progressively. So not only just right off the bat, right? I think historically within this space, it's always been give this person a risk score and then kind of like bifurcate them in this way. But these days, what we actually find to be even more effective is to do that while they're going through the experience as well. As you get more information, that information helps you actually even ascertain with more certainty whether this individual is risky or not. So a really, really kind of basic example of this is if someone chooses to take a photo of their government ID versus upload a photo. Uploading a photo for better or worse is a bit higher risk. If this photo has been touched through a photo editor, that's probably higher risk. They could have just been cropping it, but the fact that they touched it with one presents even higher risk than a photo that is just freshly captured and even more more so than one that is auto-captured.
0: Interesting. Okay. i got mine on my computer and I cropped it and uh, didn't realize I was adding to my risk level there.
1: <laughs> I'll be honest. On the cropping side, we can detect that. So we generally won't increase your risk there. We can also detect if you had decided to you know, do some additional touch-ups from a coloration perspective that, and in those types of cases, we present that as much higher risk than, you know, a crop we actually viewed it as almost like a zero.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. So then I really like your approach. I think it's really interesting how you're kind of making this sort of custom, but then does it vary then when in the process people are going to have to prove their identity? I mean, is this something that if someone is opening up an account, do you decide? Does your customer decide? Because eventually you have to prove that you are who you say you are. And what's your thoughts about when that should happen?
1: Our perspective on it is we partner with the customer. And we will help work with them to figure out exactly when it makes the most sense for them. And it really, really will vary depending on who the customer is and like what kind of experience they want to offer. Because at its core, identity is foundational to the product experience. For a lot of these type of businesses, it isn't just some check bar they're going through anymore. More so than ever, identity is a critical aspect of their entire product experience for their customers. So for us, we fundamentally view ourselves in the camp of we are a data processor. We are there to help you build that infrastructure. We oftentimes make the analogy that we're like AWS. We're like GCP. We're not here to like take over your business. We're just offering you the tools to build your business on top of, but at the end of the day, it's your data still and it's your processes that you want to own. We're here like AWS consultants to help work with you to kind of build out and introduce when you should be using this in the same way that AWS might be working with you to figure out when you should be using their S3 tools, their storage tools, their network and compute tools. We're here to tell you, hey, you may not need a biometric here. It might be a little bit overkill for the experience you're trying to offer. Maybe you actually should lean a little heavier on passive identifiers so that way you're not collecting so much sensitive information from the individual. By at the end of the day, it really is up to the customer to decide when they want to introduce this because we fundamentally also believe identity is foundational to the product experience.
0: Right. Okay. So then let's take a step back for a second and talk about sort of the race or the, or the battle, shall we say, between the fraudsters and people like you. How are you staying ahead of the game? Because they've got all the same technology that you have, right? They've got good technology. They've got good people working for them. How do you stay ahead of the game? So I can't disclose too much on this, now,
1: but <laughs> one of our, uh, you know, just the, the nature of it, right? Uh, earlier, talking about kind of uh, our detection on photo technology already, I was already a little bit like, oh, I, I suspect we might start seeing an increase in uh, live captures and frosters. We'll be aware now. But uh, my uh, perspective on this is, is that there won't be a single technique anymore. We've been hunting for so long, but there are so many edge cases now of, and it's harder and harder actually to be a froster these days than ever before. Assuming you're implementing this well, the reality of it is you have to watch for so many different things from your behavioral network device, you know, every aspect of these, there's a bunch of different signals that we can collect. And if you're not careful, it'll like, trip one of these, and each one of these will kind of add a new roadblock. So, our kind of perspective on it is rather than trying to find something, you know, hunt for that next thing, take all of the different tools that we have today, consolidate all of these in. It's just harder than ever before, right? And increasing the amount of friction they really have to go through, all of those hoops and hurdles that they have to jump through to really be able to personally get after.
0: Right, right. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about your investors. You've got some. Uh pretty major investors on your cap table. I know you recently, last year, I guess you became a unicorn. Tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey. We raised our seed
1: round with First Round Capital. And that was our uh, initial round way back, I think, in the end of 2018. And after that, we raised an A with the folks at Cotun, who I think were one of the earliest uh, Series A investments at that time. We partner with them because of my prior relationship, actually, with Andy Chen, who's one of their GPs these days. Mm -hmm. One core thing for us at Persona around investors has always been really focused on who we're working with rather than the firm itself and, you know, rather than like the reputation or even like the valuation. Oftentimes we've almost taken a pretty significant haircut at every single fundraise to make sure that we're leaving some money on the table in goodwill and also making sure we're working with the right folks. So both for first round and for Code uh, 2, the folks that we ended up working with were folks that we've had established relationships with, or it was a heavy ref- reference from someone we've had a very long-term established relationship with. Since then, we've raised both a B and a C. Our uh, B was led by uh, Index Ventures from Mark Goldberg, who was formerly at Dropbox. So you're seeing that trend come in again, where he was at Dropbox along with Charles. I've known Mark since our C round. He's one of the earliest folks we spoke with and one of the, just the best folks. In terms of who you we've know, had that contact with. And then later on, a series C led by Founders Fund, Keith Rabois over at an uh, X Square, as well as a Napoleon who joined our board. Just again, this heavy reliance on relationships, on trust, in the same way that we're trying to facilitate that trust with our customers. We've tried to kind of bring that in as well. And a lot of this was uh, brought on from the advice of Jack at uh, Square when uh, I first left. Had a series of embarrassing questions to ask him these days. I think back on that experience. And <laughs> I can't say I'm proud of uh, how it was, but I didn't know how to interact with him. You know, it's, uh, he's a monolith of a person. So uh, I had come in prepped with a bunch of questions. But uh, his answer to my question about fundraising was incredibly insightful. And what he had said at that time was investors are employees that you can never fire. So think wisely. And we really kind of took that at heart to make sure that the folks we are working with our folks that we want to work with for years and years to come. Right. I mean, the only other thing I'd say here would just be that for these past maybe five-ish years, valuations are through the roof. I mean, we're all seeing it, right? The multiples, what we're seeing on the market, for better or worse, it is easier than ever to fundraise. But my personal perspective is this probably won't last forever. And making sure to really leave some on the table. This is why our perspective on every single round that we've actually had to date, we've actually... Uh, left a significant amount of valuation on the table, making sure that, look, we are also leaving some room here to kind of like demonstrate that like, we're in it with y'all. Like we're going to be here throughout the end. And I think that's really, really critical these days to be a little bit more prudent in terms of uh, what we're chasing for, because, you know, every startup here isn't trying to build a company and like trying to find like that quick exit. We're all here to really build generational businesses, trying to build something that will stand the test of time and making sure that in the same way that you know these relationships are investors are long-term relationships that means also you know making sure that the actions we take are really thinking about that long term as well
0: right right okay so let's close maybe with this question i'd love to get sort of your vision for the future of identity verification what do you think it's going to look like in the long term
1: it's an ambitious vision that we have i hope that the future of identity verification is one in which we're submitting less data and i'm hopeful that the way in which that can happen is really through that risk segmentation. By submitting less, it also means that the data that whenever we really have to submit, it isn't as compromised, right? The reason why I think these days it's so, so, so terrifying is while we're submitting more and more data, we're also compromising ourselves every single time. As we try to seek these higher risk assurances, we're simultaneously undermining the very foundation for the identity infrastructure out there. Every time you submit a government ID, for better or worse, that information is being spread to somebody else, and that's another target that can be compromised. So on our end, number one, we want to make sure that every company out there is building on top of secure infrastructure such that they don't have to manage that data themselves. In the same way that today, businesses aren't building their own cloud data centers. They're instead relying on folks like Google, like Amazon. We think that future will be that hopefully most businesses out there aren't managing that most sensitive data themselves, that they can rely on secure infrastructure. It's still their data, but they can rely on the storage of someone who's 100% focused on managing this data well, such that, you know, this data does not get compromised. And two, by making sure this data isn't compromised, hopefully the future also is that we don't have to submit it nearly as frequently, and only whenever we really have to, do we actually have to kind of put this out there. So we think that the future of it will be one in which There'll be less data out there. There's less data to compromise. And the way in which you unlock this is by making sure that we're not submitting it every single time, by minimizing the of day we're
0: submitting today. Right, right. Well, I hope you're right. I think it's going to be interesting to see. Rick, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. Okay. Thank you so much again for having me. Yeah, two things I want to highlight that I thought were really interesting there. One is what Rick was saying about the fraudsters and how they really have a difficult time today. It's much more difficult to be a fraudster than it ever was before. Now, admittedly, their tools are better, as I said, but we have such sophisticated tools now to detect anything that is out of typical behavior, outside the norm. So it is getting harder. And I thought that was a really good point. The other point that he made right at the end there is trying to store as little data as possible, trying to ask for as little data as possible. And I really like the approach that Persona have of trying to you know, really make it so that every client's different and every journey can potentially be different because we want to make it easy for the good guys and just really, really hard for the bad guys. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.